I want to ask you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are looking at Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Revelation chapter 12, and our passage is going to be verses 1 through 6. As we're turning there, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our Facebook live stream. We're very happy to see you today. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We hope and pray that all is well with you and that you will be encouraged through the preaching of God's Word today. Again, I'm reading Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Hear the Word of the Lord. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word. May he write his truth on our hearts today. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, Lord of heaven and earth, as we come to you today, we're mindful of our great need. And we pray that you would please work in our midst through the power of the Spirit. We're thankful that the Spirit has been promised to us by our Lord Jesus while He was here on this earth, that He would send the Spirit to come and be our helper, our teacher, and to lead us and guide us into the truth. And so we submit to the Spirit's power now. Lord, may our hearts and minds be opened to be taught by You, and may we see You in all Your glory today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you open your bulletin today, in the middle of December, you are probably expecting a sermon from one of those passages that talk about the birth of Christ, Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1 or 2, or maybe one of the prophets like Isaiah, like Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We're familiar with that passage or uh, like the one that Brother Mark read earlier from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But we come today not to Matthew or Luke or Isaiah or to one of those prophets, but to Revelation. And you probably think, what in the world are we doing in the book of Revelation during Advent, Christmas time. What is this? Is it that the 
Familiar passages are too familiar. And so we have to go off on some wild goose chase. Well, maybe. Maybe there is a little bit of that. Uh, or is it that, well, this is a book Brother Randy really knows well, and he wants to just show off his skill in preaching from Revelation. It is not that, I can assure you. But I would say that at least one reason we are looking at this book and at this passage today is because of uh, what it talks about and, and the theme, really, the overall theme of, of this whole book of Revelation, which is that Christ is the victor and His church will be victorious. That's the basic message of this book. And so as we come to the, the end of 2020, it's been a crazy year, hasn't it? Uh, and as we come to Christmas season, uh, maybe we're, we're looking back and, and, and reflecting on this year and, and maybe we're struggling. Many are. Many in our churches are. Some of them are, are, are not legally allowed to meet. <laughs> Some of them have actually been struck by this virus. And there's so much information that's being tossed around about it being very dangerous, not so dangerous. I think some of us really don't know what to believe. And then there's been, a, a, throughout this year, a political upheaval and strife. And there's still questions about that. And so, if nothing else, we can say that this has been a, a year, and in particularly now, a season of confusion and anxiety there are people more so now with suicidal tendencies than at any time in our recent past there's a lot going on <laughs> and the church needs a word of hope and so that's what we have here in Revelation 12 is a word of hope there's a lot of uncertainty about a lot of things, but there is some great certainty, and it is that our Lord Jesus has come into the world, the long-awaited Messiah, and He will rule and reign forever. We know how the story ends. We may not know what's going to happen between now and the end, but we know how it ends. What a great encouragement it is to us to know that His, his church, His bride, We'll make it through whatever challenge we face. Whatever it is, we've been told that. We've been promised that. Will you embrace that promise today? That Jesus will see you through to the end? Well, that's, that's the message of Revelation. And it's reached a peak moment here in chapter 12. So that's how I got here. So let's jump in and, and see what we can find out. But before we do, I want to mention a couple of things because we are in uh, what for a lot of us is very unfamiliar territory here in Revelation. It's a different kind of book, isn't it? And so it has to be interpreted a little bit differently than, say, a Pauline epistle or a uh, historical narrative book like we've normally been doing through Ruth. This book belongs to a, uh, a genre called apocalyptic literature. In fact, uh, the name of this book in Greek is Apocalypsis. 
Uh, the apocalypse, maybe you've heard of that term. Well, that's where it comes from. Uh, apocalyptic literature contains dreams and visions and, and things that really, literally, are otherworldly. Things that if the veil were pulled back, we could see and it would be quite astonishing to us. Things that the Apostle Paul was allowed to see but not allowed to describe. But the Apostle John has been told to write these things down. He's, he's seen these things and we typically think of John as an apostle. He wrote a gospel account. He wrote three epistles. But he was given this vision here in Revelation and so we probably should think of him in this setting more like an Old Testament prophet, like Ezekiel or Zechariah, who saw very unusual things in dreams and visions. The question people come to when they get to Revelation is about interpretation. Do we interpret this literally or not? And the answer really is quite simple. It's no. And the reason that we know that is because John begins this book telling us in Revelation 1.1. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants through the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now I want you to focus for just a minute on that phrase, made it known. That's a Greek word that might be better translated, he he signified it, or he communicated it through signals. In other words, this is a, a symbolic book. It's not, it's not straightforward, is it? We, we're going to run into all kinds of problems if we try to interpret the things in this book literally, and we're told here from the outset that we shouldn't do so. Well, if not literally, how do we interpret it? Well, we have a principle that we abide by called Scripture interpreting Scripture, right? And in Revelation, this is as important as it is anywhere else because there are many, many, many references and citations and allusions to the Old Testament. How many? Well, depending on which scholar you read, that number is going to vary. But one person says that of the 404 verses here in this book, there are 600 references to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is the key, right? I read an account of a seminary professor way, way back in the late 1800s who was asked by his students to teach on the book of Revelation. So he opened it up and looked at it and stopped and said, nope, nope, we're not going to do that. He spent the next 10 years studying the Old Testament prophets. And therein lies the key for us to understand exactly what's going on in this book. And some of these uh, references and citations and allusions I think you will see here as we work our way through just these six verses. One more rule about interpreting Revelation. There's a view that says that Revelation must be interpreted in a strictly futuristic sense and what people typically mean by that is that everything that's talked about in this book is going to happen at the very end of time right before the return of Jesus. Well, I read for you Revelation 1.1 and it says there uh, mentioning things that must take place soon. 
Things that must take place soon. Soon for who? For John's original readers in the first century? Well, what would have been soon for them? Surely not 2050 or something, right? That wouldn't make much sense. <laughs> soon for us? Soon for them? Let me ask you this. Is it possible that it could be soon for all of us? And here's what I mean. Is it possible that the things that were about to take place in regard to the church starting in their day could still be taking place now? In some sense. Well, I think that is the case. And with that in mind, I want to look now to our, our passage and see what Revelation has to say about Christmas. We're going to take a, an approach that is going to recognize three sections. Imagine that, I know, hard to believe, but there are three pieces here. And what we're going to call them are three characters or three representations or, or three individuals. Uh, that None of those names work for all three of them, and I think you'll see here why it's uh, difficult to categorize it as we go along. But first, I want us to consider the woman. The woman. Now, about this woman, here in Revelation 12, we're not really told very much. But I want us to note three things in particular that John tells us about her. First, I want us to note her splendor, or we might say her, her glory. Her splendor. John tells us here in verse 1, if you look there again, that this woman was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, of course, the first question that pops in our mind is, well, who is this? Right? That's what we want to know. Who is this woman? And we again, aren't really told much about her, but what we're told is what she is wearing. We are told how she is adorned, that she is wearing the sun. She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And so what we must recognize is that her, her, her clothing, her adornment is what? Heavenly? might we say? I mean, we would have to conclude that, right? This vision, John says, uh, uh, takes place where? The, this sign appeared in heaven. And these, the, the, these things that with which the woman is clothed are heavenly bodies. Well, in wanting to identify this woman, do, do we have enough clues here well, I don't know. Uh, maybe we should ask this. Is there any place in the Bible where we have a mention of sun, moon, and stars together like this? Creation, right? I think it's uh, verse 4 in Genesis. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 16. Uh, tells us uh, that God created the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. All right? If we keep on going in Genesis, when we get over to chapter 37, if you remember this story, Joseph had a dream. And he told his brothers of this dream in which the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to him. 
So, what are we to make of this? Well, we might be inclined to think that with this description, the woman represents Israel. And I think we're on the right track there. But let's look a little bit deeper. It says that she is wearing, uh, notice particularly, this crown. Now, as all of you know, uh, what does a crown signify? Well, it signifies royalty, doesn't it? Royalty and authority. And we know, if we just look at the book of Revelation, that there's a reference to Jesus wearing a crown. I mean, that's understood. Nobody would question that. But there are other passages that reference the wearing of crowns. And notice who it is that's wearing them. This is in Revelation 2.10. Uh, at the very beginning, in the first uh, couple of chapters, Jesus is addressing seven churches. And in particular, he says this to one of them, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then in Revelation 3.11, again addressing another church, I am coming soon, hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Who is it that's wearing crowns in the first couple of chapters of Revelation? It's the church. Now we have this in Revelation 4.4. 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now who are these 24 elders? There's different uh, interpretations about this, but many scholars believe that this represents the church. This perfect number of, of 24, 12 times 2, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, and they're, they're ruling and reigning with Christ just as he promised, right? Seated on thrones wearing crowns. And so, is the woman Israel? I think it is, but not in the typical way we think, not in the ethnic sense, not in the geopolitical sense, but in an eschatological sense. Israel as the latter-day people of God. Now let's consider this next clue here for further proof. We, we see secondly that the woman is pregnant. She is pregnant. What does pregnancy indicate? I've never been pregnant, so I'm giving you a second-hand account of what I think, okay? <laughs> I haven't been pregnant, but I have lived with a person who has uh, been pregnant and, and born three children, so I can tell you a little bit about what that was like for me. But pregnancy is a time of expectancy, right? Sometimes we even use that word. This lady is expecting it's a time of anticipation. It's a time of, of longing. Maybe it's even a time of anxiety, right? But there's something that's going to happen in the future. This woman is described here as pregnant. And we know from the rest of the reading that she will eventually have a child. But at this point, when we glance up and see the vision that John is describing us, we see raiment on a woman, the sun, moon, and stars, and we see that she is pregnant, indicating for us that there's something that's going to happen in her future, right? Something's happening in the future. And then finally, John adds in verse 2 that she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now what we see, 
with regard to this woman who is described for us as being pregnant is that there is great suffering related to this pregnancy. I want to point out to you uh, uh, particularly the word that John uses here that is translated agony. It's a word that we don't usually associate with pregnancy. Now, now the preceding phrase, crying out in birth pains, yes, we would expect that, right? That's normal. But this word here that he uses that's translated agony is not something that we would associate with pregnancy. It's a word that is more often associated with torture or suffering. It's used by Matthew and Mark when they describe uh, the, the storm that... that uh, the disciples experienced when they were on the boat crossing the sea when Jesus walked on the water and were told that the waves were battering this boat. So that's the word there. So, so it indicates persecution and suffering. And when we think back to the history of the people of God, we see much evidence of this, don't we? We recall during their exile, especially uh, a time when Judea was under Babylonian and Persian and, and Greek and Roman rule. So when we take all the clues and put everything together, who is this woman? Well, we can see that this woman is the faithful covenant people of God. Now, this is both before and after the birth of Christ. That's why we have to say that it's not ethnic Israel. Because we're going to see uh, as we look even further, and especially if you want to take the time to read on past verse 7, that this woman has other offspring. And so to get to the point, let's just say for now that this woman represents the Lord's church today. This woman represents you. Now, that takes us to the second figure or person or entity that is described here and it is the dragon this is usually the part where all the kids pay close attention right because who doesn't like dragons well nobody would like this dragon we know who the dragon is right this one is a lot less controversial and it's very explicit in fact if we uh, look down uh, past our reading to verse 9 we'll see that john tells us explicitly and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. Notice there that John, uh, in his description of who the dragon is, takes us way, way back in time to what? The Garden of Eden, that ancient serpent. He's been around, this dragon. <laughs> But look specifically here about what he says. First, his appearance, the appearance of the dragon, says in verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now first, the dragon is described as red. We don't even have to wonder about that, do we? We know that when we see a red dragon, we're talking about something evil, right? We don't think of this as, oh, well, this is a good dragon. This is a nice dragon. We've got our, our stories out there of, of good dragons that do good things, but we know that this is a bad dragon, don't we? I'm not going to get into a lot of, of depth here about this, but just if... 
we wanted to, to go back here in Revelation, there is a description of four horses back in chapter 6, often referred to as the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And one of those horses is red. And what happens, what's associated with that red horse? It says that its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And so this red speaks of, of fighting, of bloodshed, of, of war and battle, and violence. Notice also that the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Now this is where, in my opinion, a lot of people get sidetracked. They try to decipher, okay, they, they write down seven lines and then they write down ten lines and they try to start filling out all, okay, who's, who, who, who's he talking about here? And I don't think that's the approach that we should take in Revelation. In fact, I think it's dangerous. Imagine the, the first recipients of this letter pulling this out saying, okay, who is he talking about here? Who are these seven, what is this? Well, he's talking about probably seven kingdoms, right? There's diadems that represents authority. <laughs> Today, people interpret this as seven modern nations. I remember back in the 80s, people would underline seven times and then write in the Soviet Union, China, Iran, uh, you know, Islamic nations, atheistic nations, nations opposed to Christianity and Christian nations. Well, I think it's more important to recognize why John uses these numbers the way he does. These numbers are very symbolic, and we know what these numbers are, don't we? We know what the number seven represents. Seven has often been called the perfect number, right? It represents completion. There are seven days in a week. In fact, what's interesting is that, you know, we, we not only mentioned the seven churches that Jesus addresses at the beginning, the seven churches of Asia Minor, but the Lamb, back in Revelation chapter 5, who is Christ, he has seven horns and seven eyes. What does that mean? Well, that means that this, this dragon here could be some type of counterfeit, right? Counterfeiting the, the perfection and the completeness of the Lord Jesus, we're told that he uh, is a, a powerful figure. The seven heads could possibly represent someone who is, is very wise, very intelligent in the worldly sense, right? And so this is a, 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 a representation explicitly of Satan, but not only of Satan, but his use of the kingdoms of this world to accomplish his goals. We see here not only the uh, appearance, uh, the description of the dragon, but I want us to also notice his situation. What I mean by situation is technically where the dragon is situated. John tells us where this dragon has situated himself. Did you see this? Halfway through verse 4, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. In other words, this dragon, the devil, Satan, and the earthly powers that are under his control, there's a, strate a strategic positioning. There's a strategy in place. And that is to be in a situation, a position to destroy the Messiah. 
Now this is a motif that we can trace through the Old Testament. It shouldn't surprise us, should it? In fact, it happens very soon after the appearance of the dragon, the ancient serpent in the Garden of Eden. We see uh, mortal combat between Cain and Abel, this, this conflict between these two lines. This conflict takes place in the lives of Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and Saul and David. And corporately, we see this conflict facing God's people throughout the Old Testament, uh, throughout their history. They are facing constant battle. And so the plight of the Jews in the Old Testament is constant engagement from enemy nations. In fact, uh, there are very explicit sections of their history where we find out that the goal of the enemy was not just to defeat them, but to exterminate them. Remember the story of Esther? There was a very wicked man there named Haman who was an assistant to the king, and he used his political power to have a law passed that the Jews could be completely wiped out, exterminated. And what a great story it is, a great story of redemption, how God raised up someone to save his people. And of course, we're very mindful, not long after the birth of Christ, of the attempt by Herod the king. So determined to destroy the Lord Jesus that he had every baby boy in Bethlehem slaughtered. Sometimes I think we may sentimentalize Christmas just a little too much. It's actually a story of, of conflict and conquest, as we'll see. <laughs> but that's the dragon, and that is his intent. It says there at the end of verse 5 that he might devour it, that is, consume it, destroy it. His, his goal, his purpose from the, from the time of the Garden of Eden on was to, to be there so that when this child was born, he could destroy it. So that takes us to the child. Having seen the woman and the dragon, we, we come to the last figure depicted here in this scene, and it is the child. If you will look again at verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now let's pause right there. This woman does indeed bear a child, a male son. There is a lot of controversy about the identification of the woman, uh, some about the dragon, but there's really none about the child. Everybody knows who the child is, don't they? This is the least controversial of the figures here. <laughs> now, interesting here, in this, in this episode, in this scene, what we're told about the child is very limited. I mean, of all the things that could have been told uh, here in this vision that John sees, he just gives us one little, really, uh, just one phrase to describe the child. And what is it? He will... Rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's it. That's all he says. And we think, well, boy, that's not much, is it? Well, actually, 
It's very important. It's very significant. It's so important that we have that phrase recorded for us in Revelation. Anybody know how many times? Three times. At the beginning, right here in the middle, and then again at the end. In Revelation 2.27, Jesus addresses uh, one of the churches, Thyatira. And it is mentioned there that he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then at the end, chapter 19, verse 15, there's a passage that describes Jesus' return in judgment upon the kingdoms of the world. And it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then here in chapter 12, this middle section here, if you will, mentions again him ruling with a rod of iron. Well, what does this mean? Well, the first thing that we need to recognize is that this is a quote. As I told you, there's a lot of quotes. There's a lot of allusions and parallels to different Old Testament stories and passages and texts. And this actually is a quote from Psalm 2. So if we want to know what this phrase means, we need to know a little bit about Psalm 2, don't we? And what Psalm 2 means. Well, let me very quickly give you a, a brief summary of it. Psalm 2 is actually a psalm that encapsulates all of human history. It begins by asking this question the psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The psalmist is looking back at the history of God's people and he has seen this conflict. From Eden on, there has been this battle, whether through individuals or, in his case, nations. And if this was David writing this, we know the situation with David. There were nations surrounding Israel. And David was in a constant state of war, wasn't he? And so we ask the question, and he's being somewhat rhetorical and somewhat mocking here, why do the nations rage and, and the peoples plot in vain? They're fools. Because he goes on and says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. Not in the sense that he finds this funny. But God Almighty recognizes how ridiculous it is that all these worldly powers think they're so great that they could stand up to the creator of the universe. No, there's coming a day of wrath and fury. And this psalm mentions the Messiah, God's Son, who is going to come and it says in Psalm 2, 9, Break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Picture that. Break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What is that message communicated there in Psalm 2? It's a message of judgment, isn't it? He says the coming Messiah will, will break them or rule them here in Revelation 12. Now this word for rule 
is often translated shepherd. He will shepherd them, we might say. And when we think of shepherd, particularly Jesus, our great shepherd, what do we think of? Well, we think of Jesus guiding us to green pastures, our good shepherd who, who leads us to quiet waters. And, and if we're hurt, if we're injured, he binds up our wounds. If we're sick, he takes care of us, right? If we stray, he comes after us. All of those things a shepherd does. He feeds and leads and guides and heals. And he, he knows his sheep. And they know him. But there's something else that we need to recognize that a shepherd does. A shepherd protects. Because a sheep is a very vulnerable creature, isn't it? It really possesses no defense mechanism. So a sheep is an easy prey. For a wolf. And one thing that a shepherd does is he protects his sheep against threats, against danger, against harm. And in the case of Jesus here, not only does he protect in the sense of driving away, but he ultimately destroys his enemies. If you were a shepherd in New Testament times, you would have never had a, a rod of iron or a staff of iron, would you? Shepherds don't go down to the, to the, uh, the place where they forge metal weapons and say, yes, I'd like to get a staff. No, they find a piece of wood, hopefully a good hard piece of wood that will last, and they, they fashion their own staffs. And yet unusually here, we find that, that this Messiah, this child, has a, has a rod, has a staff, and this staff is made of iron. <laughs> this calls attention to the fact that the punishment inflicted by the shepherd on those who were God's enemies will be harsh, severe, and complete. This is a message of judgment. Now, why do we go through and do all of this and talk about all of this well we need to recognize the completeness of the Christmas story we see laying in the manger in our mind's eye a baby <coughs> helpless we recognize the humanity of Christ don't we at Christmas as we should coming into this world, taking on flesh and bone, becoming like us. But we need to recognize who it is that's lying in that manger, that he will rule and reign, and that every enemy that comes against him will be utterly and completely and eternally destroyed now I say all of that to say what are the enemies that you see out there today rogue nations how do you primarily see yourself do you see yourself as an American who's struggling with whether or not this election was valid and, and how dangerous the Chinese are 
to our country and what a threat they are? Are they a threat to you? Are they a threat to the church? Oh, there may be conflict. <laughs> we know how the story ends. Maybe you see yourself as an employee working in this position or that position. Maybe, maybe you're not working. A lot of people in America right now aren't. It would make sense to have some anxiety and to be worried and to be afraid. But this passage tells us that there's one who is the shepherd of God's people. And we know what that means for us, don't we? We know what that means. We know what it means for us to have Jesus as our shepherd. He's going to take care of everything. But it's especially important to, to be reminded at Christmas time a message that I think is often forgot because we see a little baby lying in a manger that that baby is the judge of the universe. And there's coming a time where he will rule the nations, every nation. There is nothing out there that is not under his control, under his authority. And there's nothing that we need to be afraid of. The message of Christmas is a message of peace. Do you have that peace? It's a message of joy. The angels are rejoicing and they're singing. Do you have that joy? It's a message of hope. I want to close with the reading of one passage here in Revelation 12. And this is Revelation 12, verse 11. This is talking about you and the hope of the gospel. Listen to it. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You are a conqueror. That's who the church is. Amen? Amen. Because of our Lord Jesus, we are. Let's pray together. We're thankful, Father, for the good news of the gospel. We're thankful that this baby that has come into the world is the Messiah. The great shepherd who not only leads and protects, and, but also guards and judges his enemies and the enemies of the church. Lord, there may be more conflict in the future. We don't know what lies ahead for us throughout the history of your church, there has been much conflict and suffering and persecution. And yet we know that you are the victor. So we look to you and we pray that you would enable us to carry this message of hope into the world today. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.